0: Hello and welcome to the September 2017 edition of the Free Movement Immigration Update podcast. My name's Colin Yeo. This month we're covering several cases, one from the Court of Appeal, others from the Upper Tribunal, and I'm also going to give a mention to some of our new explainers on different aspects of immigration law. In particular, I'm going to take a look at the case of Samin Bigzad, whose case highlighted the law on contempt of court for a government minister. All the material is drawn from the September 2017 blog posts on free movement. And if you want to claim CPD points um, for listening to this, then head over to www.freemovement.org.uk. So, starting with the Court of Appeal case. This is a case called AS against Secretary of State for the Home Department, reference 2017 EWCA 1284. And this case is about what we might call the integration test in the immigration rules on private life. So this is where a person is resisting removal to their home country on the basis of um, the links that they've established in the UK. Um, It's covered at paragraph 276 ADE of the immigration rules and there's basically six different scenarios that are outlined in the rules where a person might potentially succeed. The last of these uh, essentially requires that the applicant prove that there would be very significant obstacles to that person's reintegration into their country if they were going to be removed or deported there. Now, this rule um, was changed um, some time ago from an original version introduced in 2012. And the original version introduced in 2012 um, provided that um, the person had to show that they had no ties um, to to, to the country, and that was um, social, cultural or family ties. Now, the change occurred in 2014, and um, although there was some tribunal authority from the case of Ogundimu on the previous version the ties version of this rule and um, there hasn't really been any um, or very much at least um, judicial learning on the newer version. We did see a court of appeal case called Kamara which is quite a useful one 2016 EWCA Civ 813 um, in which Lord Justice Sales, um suggested that the the integration test is really a, a broad evaluative judgment and that it's about um, whether the individual will be enough of an insider in terms of understanding how life in the society in the other country is carried on and a capacity to participate in it and so on. Um, so Kamara is a good reference point, but this new case of A.S. goes a little bit further and it's um, it's a case where basically in the first tier the immigration judge had um, apparently messed up really by um, not taking account of the change to the rules. So seemed to have looked at the existence of ties rather than the question of how the person would integrate if sent back. The upper tribunal um, overturned the allowed appeal um, on the basis of what are really called generic or general sort of um, assertions about A.S., such as the fact that he was intelligent and adaptable. Um, That was appealed up to the Court of Appeal um, unsuccessfully by A.S., and the Court of Appeal held that it was legitimate to take into account um, sort of generic considerations as relevant considerations and that the upper tribunal hadn't erred in its approach. So if you are dealing with these kinds of private life cases, you're trying to um, look at whether a person fits within paragraph 276 ADE, then this is one of your two main reference points points along with the case of Kamara. OK, I'm going to move on to the upper tribunal cases now. Some of these we can take fairly briefly. This first one is a case called R on the application of RN against Secretary of State for the Home Department. And it's about paragraph 245 a. The reference is 2017 UKUT76IAC. Now, it's um, it's a case that actually came out in January in which we hadn't written up. Um, it's it's quite an important one, though, potentially, and, and often these cases are very important for the people they affect, even if that is quite a small group. Um, this one, I understand, is under appeal. I think one of my colleagues, Amanda Weston, is um, taking the case. And um, it's really on the question of when a points-based system migrant or family member might qualify for indefinite leave to remain on the basis of five years of residence. And it's a question of absences from the UK, and what it turns on really in the end is the question of whether residence is the same as presence um, under the immigration rules. Now, the Upper Tribunal hold in this case that it is, but of course there there is an argument that it isn't because the the, the two words are different after all, residence and presence. And um, where two different words are used, then you know potentially certainly they'll, they they may well have separate meanings. Um, Residence could be interpreted much more broadly than presence, because if you're away on a day trip or just a a weekend away or city break or something like that, then you could easily still be resident in the country, even if you weren't present there. And you might well make reference to the concept of ordinary residence um, as well, which is um, a sort of venerable legal concept that goes back um, quite some way and has a a separate um, set of case law so it's it's an interesting one and um, one to watch as it stands um, the case isn't at all helpful for migrants but that may change if their appeal goes ahead and if the result is different okay i'm going to move on to another one now and this is another slightly old case that had slipped under my radar i have to confess and i think that's because of the um the way the title was done by the tribunal, which makes it sound profoundly uninteresting. So, the title is TM brackets EEA nationals dash meaning semicolon NI practitioners colon Zimbabwe. It's referenced 2017 UKUT 165 IAC. And um, in fact, the, the main interest of this case isn't, to me anyway, isn't covered in the title at all, which is that um, the Immigration EA Regulations 2006. Are preserved in appeals, um, which commence. Sorry, which had commenced already on the first of February two thousand and seventeen. Now that is different to the situation when the two thousand and six regulations replaced the two thousand regulations, because in a case called MG and VC, um, the tribunal held that the two thousand and six regulations took immediate effect. So this case is saying that, and um, the TM case is saying that that doesn't apply this time, and that is because of transitional arrangements. Um, I think, in particular, in one of the schedules to the regulations. Um, although I actually, I, I don't think I've actually recorded in the blog post which schedule it was. I think it's Schedule Four or something like that. Um, so that, that's quite an important one to be aware of. And I confess that it, I I hadn't actually been aware of that myself. So um, I'm, I'm I'm fessing up in front of you all. Okay, I'm going to move on now to um, another case. This is a case called Slayman Deprivation of Citizenship Conduct 2017 UKUT. 367 IAC and this one is one of mine in fact. So it's a case involving um, somebody who had naturalised as a British citizen and where the Home Office was taking um, action to deprive him of his British citizenship. So if you quickly go through the background, because there's an increasing number of these deprivation cases, and we've put together a a course on them going through what the statutory framework is, and what the leading case law is, how to distinguish between deprivation and nullification, looking at some of the arguments that are available. Um, And um, this is an interesting one because it's the kind of set of facts that isn't, um, it's not unusual, should we say, in these kind of deprivation cases. So the um, claimant or the applicant had entered the UK and at the time that he'd entered as a young man, he had lied about his age. And because of the age that he claimed to be, he'd been given a short grant of leave, so slightly under 18 according to his own account at that time. He'd been given exceptional leave to remain at that time and he had then applied for an extension um, which the Home Office had sat on. So he'd applied in time. Now, the Home Office sat on that for an extremely long time. It was a time when the Home Office was really struggling with its caseload. He ended up in, uh, being put into what was called the, the legacy um, system. And after about five years, I think it was, uh, eventually the Home Office decided to grant him indefinite leave to remain. And at that time, they noted that um, it was really because of the delay rather than for um, any other reasons and that his age was irrelevant to the grant of ILR. So he then, um, with ILR, a year later or so, applied for naturalisation and became a British citizen. Now, it later came to the Home Office's attention that he had misled about his age. Um, This this sort of thing often comes out in later visa applications or or, or things like that. And um, the Home Office decided that but for his lie about his age, he would never have had exceptional leave to remain... Which would not have, which basically meant that he wouldn't have been eligible to apply for an extension of leave with ILR. He wouldn't have been lawfully resident for all the time that the Home Office was um, sitting on his application, and he wouldn't therefore have qualified for naturalisation. His argument was that there was no direct link between his um, misleading on age and the eventual grant of ILR, and that the grant of ILR was because of the Home Office delay and the fact that he ended up on the in, in the legacy. Um, so the tribunal takes a, a close look at the statutory framework and the um, considers whether this kind of Home Office but-for approach is, is, is the right one. Um, the tribunal also takes a close look at the Home Office policy on um, deception and deprivation cases and ultimately concludes that um, there wasn't a sufficiently direct bearing on the decision in that case and therefore he retained his... British citizenship, the the, the deprivation appeal succeeded, um, in short. Right, moving on to um, another case. This is a fairly quick one to, to go through. It's basically further guidance from the Tribunal on withdrawal of appeals. So the title of the case is TPN brackets FTT appeals withdrawal, Vietnam 2017 UKUT 295IAC. Now, I'm not going to go through this in detail, but it's the second case I think we've seen from the tribunal looking at um, the proper approach to withdrawal of appeals, in particular by the Home Office, um, because you'll probably be aware if you're listening to this that the Home Office has a power to withdraw a decision which will normally lead to an appeal being withdrawn, but there is a discretionary power potentially. Um, for the tribunal to allow the appeal to continue even though a decision has been withdrawn. So it, it's a case that's worth having a quick look at um, so that you're prepared, because of course often this actually comes as a bit of a surprise on the day of the hearing, uh, at which point it's a little bit late for looking these things up. Okay, another case. This is a an important one and it's of potentially very wide application and it, it's also quite a startling set of facts, frankly. This is a case called ARANS, A R R. ANZ, EA Regulations Deportation Test, 2017, UKUT 294IAC. Now, the set of facts I say is striking. It's um, that the gentleman concerned had been convicted in Spain of the murder of 12 civil guards and injury to 43 civil guards and 17 civilians. And that had been perpetrated on the 14th of July 1986, and the offences were committed in the name of the terrorist organisation ETA and the appellant had been sentenced to 30 years of imprisonment so he was released after 24 years he travelled to the UK and he was sought by the spanish authorities under an extant um, european arrest warrant there'd been separate proceedings on extradition and his extradition had in fact been ordered and then the extradition was I understand carried out on the 5th of May 2017 not long after the appeal was actually decided in this case and um, I understand from Spanish media that he is now imprisoned in Spain. On top of that in the UK he'd been found in possession of various false identity documents and he didn't hold permanent residence in the UK and therefore didn't benefit from the enhanced protection that uh, from deportation that permanent residence brings. So the question was, um, could he be deported? Now, ultimately, it's probably academic because he was um, extradited in any event, but um, what the tribunal says here is interesting for other deportation cases. Now, this case is decided under the 2006 regulations, which, of course, we're just discussing earlier, have been replaced by the um, 2016 regulations in all cases from the 1st of February, 2016. Um, as we discussed, um, appeals carry on as they are, but new cases are decided under the 2016 regulations. The 2016 regulations are different on deportation. In particular, there's Schedule 1 regarding deportation and the fundamental interests of the United Kingdom. And there's kind of set of criteria that the Home Office says it will be um, unlawful for a judge not to have regard to. Now, the, the legality of that is somewhat dubious, should we say, of Schedule 1. Um, um, And the reason I'm mentioning that now is that Iran's, of course, decided under the 2006 regulation. So, you know, is it just a very limited interest or does it have ongoing relevance? I think there's a very strong argument that it does have ongoing relevance because European law hasn't changed in the meantime, basically. And really the... Um, the ratio, shall we say, the the real decided point of this case is that if there is no current risk, if there is no serious um, and present threat to the interests of the United Kingdom, and basically there is no risk of reoffending, um, then the the test for deportation is not met. And importantly, and this is perhaps one more for the sort of case law geeks um, like me, basically, um, the the tribunal confirms its opinion or confirms understanding really that what we call the Bouchereau exception um, to deportation is no longer good law. Bouchereau and the line of cases that followed it were about um, particularly awful crimes um, which were offensive to the public um, potentially allowing for deportation in EU law even though there was no present threat and the tribunal agrees with the Court of Appeal that's probably not good law anymore and that it's been uh, effectively superseded by the Um, to EU law in 2006 that took effect in 2006. So if you are dealing with petty criminals or or crimes of a rather less serious nature which is almost any crime, then this is a a useful reference point potentially when talking a judge through how EU law works Um, because this this was a a terrible crime that was committed, a very long prison sentence that was imposed. Um, There were some indicators at least of of current risk in that there was uh, a European arrest warrant and there was also the um, false identity papers Um, but nevertheless the tribunal held that um, the test for deportation in EU law wasn't satisfied by the facts of the case and the appeal was allowed. Another case from the tribunal this one is called R on the application of MMK against Secretary of State for the Home Department and this is on consent orders legal effect and enforcement 2017 UKUT 198 IAC. Now, President McCloskey, who um, is no longer president of the tribunal, he's been replaced, um, his term having come to an end, was, uh, I think those who are following tribunal case law uh, will be aware, he was increasingly anxious at lack of respect by parties um, for um, orders, basically, of the tribunal and for tribunal procedure. And this case, arguably, explains one of the reasons why um, if there has been an increase in disregard for tribunal orders and procedure um, that why that might well be taking place because in this case we've got a classic example it doesn't this this is not at all uncommon should we say where the home office um, withdrew its decision in response to an application for judicial review the home office then agreed a consent order which included an agreement to pay the cost to the claimant and to make a new decision within a certain time period, and then the Home Office just simply didn't do so. The, the, the new decision didn't follow within the time um, that had been agreed. Um, as an aside, of course, for those who, who aren't familiar with judicial review, this is why the headline figures on success rates for judicial review are quite misleading, because a lot of claims are settled out of court in the claimant's favour in this way. So the time frame in this case was 3 months for a new decision and it took the home office 10 months to issue the decision and um, even longer than that to to pay the claimant's legal costs. So what could the claimant do about the disregard for the consent order? And what would the tribunal do um, when this was brought to the tribunal's attention? Well, President McCloskey decides the case and he notes that the tribunal does have the power to punish for contempt of court. And that's something we're going to, to to look at in a moment in the Samian Bigzad case. Um, but he then finds that the, tr- the the proceedings in this case had in truth been ended and there was no power to resurrect them. And that was because of the very final terms of the consent order in question. And also he points out that the consent order didn't actually mandate the Home Office to do anything other than pay costs and the reason for that was that the agreement for the home office to make a new decision was in the recital to the order not the body of the order it wasn't one of the numbered paragraphs as such it was on the it was in the kind of upon um, type paragraphs at the at the start of the order so astute litigators who are getting fed up of home office non-compliance will note what the tribunal says here and will presumably now look to agree consent orders where the agreement is explicitly in the order of the court as opposed to the recital, um, and also where potentially a, a, a relatively open-ended um, consent order is agreed, where there's an agreement that um, the proceedings can be reinstated in the event of non-compliance or something of that nature. Now the first should be easy to achieve, the second rather less so perhaps – and the tribunal says that basically, where there is non-compliance with a consent order, then often the uh, remedy will be initiation of a fresh judicial review claim. And you know why anybody would want that to happen is just a complete mystery. Um, and it, it does rather beg the question of you know, if 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 the the, the tribunal appears basically be willing to turn a completely blind eye to non-compliance with its orders, which is 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 problematic and is one of the reasons why parties perhaps do pay the tribunal less attention than they should. Okay, so I said I'd mention the Samin Bigzad case and contempt of court. Now, this was a case of an asylum seeker from Afghanistan who I think uh, his, his claim for asylum had not succeeded, and he was removed to Afghanistan on the 12th of September. Um, but the, I think if we dig around and look at the press reports... I think it wasn't actually at the time of removal in breach of an order. I think the timing was that um, he was removed and then an order was made for him not to be removed, but but, but the removal had already taken place. And what the Home Office did was they basically continued with the removal. I think um, he went to Afghanistan via Turkey, I think via Istanbul, um, and the Home Office, despite being aware of the order not to remove, by the time he reached Turkey, carried on with the removal. Um, and then um, ignored further orders by further judges. So there was a further order by Mr Justice a a, a bit further along the line, um, which specifically ordered the Home Office to take all available steps to procure his immediate return to the United Kingdom. And then the Home Office apparently ignored that order, and a further order was made by Mr Justice Lang requiring immediate return to the United Kingdom from Kabul, Um, the Home Office then appealed that to the Court of Appeal. There was a weekend hearing at the Court of Appeal, I think, which um, didn't go the Home Office way and eventually um, the Home Office did comply with the uh, very belatedly with the multiple orders that were made in this case. Now, um, I've I've put a blog post on Free Movement looking at the um, procedural and legal background to this and looking at why the Home Office seems to have acted as it did and it seems to be... um, first of all because of just lack of respect for court orders i don't think home office officials are sufficiently aware perhaps of the importance of, of of a judge order um and they were disputing the merits they were trying to appeal but without complying and and that's always going to be very problematic in terms of rule of law um secondly i think there's a problem with the way that the home office policies were drafted because there was some ambiguity and the case wasn't clearly covered by the different scenarios that um, officials are instructed on by their by their guidance. Um, so it, it, it certainly looked on the face of it as if the Home Office had committed contempt of court. And in those circumstances, it's the Secretary of State for the Home Department who is personally liable. And that was established in, in an old case in which um, Kenneth Baker was held to have been personally guilty of contempt of court. Now, he was personally aware of the removal, the asylum removal in that case, and he had personally um, ordered that um, the removal take place in breach of the order. However, um, I'm not not quite sure that his personal knowledge was necessarily um, part of um, what w- was required. It would be interesting to see if the, if the Big sack case does go further and does go to court. And I haven't really heard anything um, since the, the, me- the original media coverage then it would be interesting to see if there is any kind of personal liability, how much per Amber Rudd actually knew, because the policies at the Home Office are certainly that these kind of issues need to be escalated and that um, senior civil servants and and ministers need to be um, brought into the picture quite quickly. So watch this space, but it's a good illustration of how contempt of court works and the importance of compliance with court orders. Okay, just ending this month's podcast, then we've got another three explainers that I just want to really quickly mention and not go through in detail. Um, There's one on the fee waiver policy, covering who qualifies and what the Home Office policy says. So, fee waivers are where the astronomical fees that are now charged for um, immigration applications might potentially be unaffordable. Um, to an applicant and where it might be that they can bring themselves within the fee waiver policy where the Home Office will consider the application even though the person um, hasn't paid the fee. Now it's quite a limited group of people and it's essentially around destitution and exceptional circumstances which is very hard to prove Um, but if you um, are interested in that or if you're dealing with those kinds of cases um, then do take a look at that post. Um, Also to flag up a post on um, Serge Aurier if I'm pronouncing um, that correctly, um, who was transferred from Paris Saint-Germain to Tottenham Hotspur? And um, Paul Erdnast takes a look at the rules around uh, football transfers uh, within the EU, outside the EU, how the different, um, what the different options are, and um, I think it's quite an interesting case study in um, sort of elite sport immigration stuff. Okay, finally. Um, we put out a post on what seems to be a new team at the Home Office that's been set up to deal with high-profile immigration cases because we've noticed that increasingly um, where a sympathetic migrant story reaches the media, and there's a lot of fuss essentially on on Twitter and in mainstream press outlets, the Home Office is actually getting quite good at responding quickly to those and potentially reversing decisions that have been made and we spelled out several examples um, starting with the Brian White case a um, Zimbabwean um, who wants to go to university but there's there's several others as well and there have been more since we actually published that post so it seems like um, media coverage of a story does potentially have benefits to the migrants um, particularly where it's uh, it, it's presented sympathetically in the media and of course the pr- problem with media coverage is that one's never quite sure how it's going to go Um, how the um, different newspapers might react and it could be that while some press outlets paint a sympathetic portrait of a case it could be that other media outlets get outraged by the same facts and um, in those kinds of situations um, that kind of coverage isn't necessarily going to be helpful Um, but certainly we've come across several cases where really daft Home Office decisions have ultimately been overturned far sooner than they would have been um, because your know, appeals are taking what 18 months at the moment some of them um, so far sooner there would have been um, where sympathetic media coverage is secured so it's, it's worth it's another tool in the box should we say and it's worth thinking about in in certain cases okay i hope that's been helpful that's the end of this month's podcast thank you and goodbye